hey everyone. Welcome to episode 322 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had a wonderful conversation with New England photographer Mike Blanchett. Mike and I cover a large number of subjects this week, including his proclivity for photographing what we both call the hand of man in the natural landscape, including lighthouses and other structures that can be found all over New England. We also discuss social media and, of course, everyone's favorite subject, compositing. Ooh. Sit back and relax and enjoy our conversation, trust me. Well, before we get going, I want to let you know that entries are now open for the third year of the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. You have until July 31st to enter, so you need to kind of hurry. We've added some new categories, we've made further clarifications to our rules, and we've created an entirely new judging panel, with only Theo Bosboom returning for year three. In addition to Theo, we're excited to add Charlotte Gibb, Victoria Hack, Michael Shanebloom, and Andy Mumford to our panel this year, and we've changed our rules so that you can enter images taken any time in the past. Remember, on top of the over $13,000 in cash that we're giving away, over 100 photographers will be chosen to be featured in our fine art photography book, and if you're selected, you get a copy of the book at no cost to you, which I think is something that no other competition offers. Just go to naturallandscapeawards.com to get started or check out the show notes. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Mike Blanchett. All right, Mike Blanchett, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great, great to be here. Yeah, you come highly recommended from all of my friends over in New England, especially Ben Williamson, who I had a great time speaking with here on the podcast, and we also co-taught a presentation at out of Chicago a couple of years ago, which was a lot of fun. Oh, yes. I, ben and I uh, go ways back. So uh, he was uh, sort of like a son to me, given the age difference between us. So we've worked together. That's awesome. That's super awesome. Well, for people who aren't familiar with you and your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? So uh, it's Mike Blanchett, and I'm based in New England. In fact, I live in New Hampshire. But I photograph pretty much not only throughout the New England states, but I photograph elsewhere in the states and uh, also in Europe. I like to get away every once in a while, spend most of my time in New England, probably 10 months out of the 12. But I like to get away for a little diversity. And when I come back, I appreciate New England a little more. So I live here with uh, my wife and we have two grown children and five grandkids. So uh, basically, uh, I spent about four or five years in Silicon Valley in my prior life. But I've been doing photography now since, I guess, pretty much um, full time, should we say, till about since about 2007. So uh, that's probably why you've heard of me. I've been around for a long time. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's pretty much about the time that that I even started getting interested in photography. So that that makes sense. <laughs> so, so I'd I'd love to hear about kind of what got you sparked in photography. What what got you going in photography to begin with? So it really all started back in my early 20s, uh, which was a long time ago. Uh, but it happened that uh, my wife was expecting our first child. And up until that point, I'd been using compact cameras to take pictures, vacation pictures and so on, family pictures. But I thought, well, we've got a child coming. I should get much better gear and be prepared to take children photos, baby photos and so on. 
So I went out and bought Minolta, which has been long off the market. So, but it was an SLR with all various lenses and so on. And I decided that I didn't, I didn't know an awful lot about photography, so I decided to take a night course. So I signed up for a night course and uh, that sort of got the bug started. And later on, I upgraded my gear. I went with Nikon uh, at the time. And again, SLR with all the lenses and you know filters and so on. But as most of us have experienced when you're building a career in a family, uh, it's a little bit hard to really spend a lot of time photographing, which would have been a hobby at the time. So I, um, I used to photograph on weekends and on vacation primarily, but I loved it, always loved it. And then in 2000, something startling happened, which is that Nikon announced a two megapixel, I think it was a two or three megapixel digital camera. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, you probably were a kid then, but it was, I think it was called the Coolpix 900. It was about a thousand bucks, it wasn't cheap. And it had, uh, it operated on eight AA batteries. And uh, it was kind of a weird sort of design with the batteries on one side and then a swivel kind of lens with a zoom on the other side. And uh, I thought, this is so great, this digital era. Because I was in the software business, so the idea of digital really was appealing. So I latched on, so I was an early adopter of digital. And then they progressed from there. And then I sort of continually upgraded to new digital cameras. I latched on to Nikon just because, well, once you start filling the gap with lenses and all the accessories, you're, you're kind of building an inventory and it's hard to switch. So I'm currently a Nikon shooter, but that's sort of how I got started. So I wasn't shooting full time until in my 40s, I, I decided to leave industry and that, and that became basically my full time job, if you will. I call it my low paid uh, uh, career, second career. So nice. that's pretty much for now. Gotcha. Yeah. So 2000, I was just finishing up college, so I wasn't too young. <laughs> so when you first picked up the camera, was it instantly you were gravitating towards landscape and nature or did you start somewhere else? Well, I think like a lot of people, I tried just about everything mm -hmm. until it's settled, uh, until you've sort of developed uh, both an aptitude and an interest in a particular sort of subject. And I tried everything. I tried macro and macro lenses. You know, for a while I had these, uh, I forget what they were called, but Nikon had these little macro um, lights that you would hook onto the side of the camera to take macro photos. And I had those for a while. I had so much gear that I've gotten turned over and sold over the years because my interest shifted. Uh, I tried uh, infrared photography for a while. I had a couple of infrared cameras and uh, tried that. Uh, you know, flower photography. I never did weddings, thank God. I never, <laughs> I never could see sort of my interest blending with the mother-in-laws. So I never, I never did weddings or anything like that. But I tried a variety of things. But eventually, I, I really settled in landscape and nature. That's really what I like. And uh, that's pretty much what I focus on. So the other stuff sort of fell by the wayside. I sold my infrared cameras and I don't do much else uh, except landscape and, and nature. So yeah, that's that's what I like to do. And and why landscape and nature? Well, I think the whole the whole uh, field for me, the whole profession, if you will, is interesting partly because it gets me outside. Uh, you know, I spent 26 years in business and in industry, writing software, uh, obviously inside an office, and so the idea of 
being able to get out and be outside in this second career uh, was really a big appeal. And I was, so I wanted to be outside. So that to me meant landscape and nature. I want to be outside. So uh, really that was the appeal. And the other thing is sort of if I have a major goal that it is to, it's to show the world at its best. And so I thought I could do that best with you know, photographing landscapes, both here and elsewhere. So that's really my interest. Got it. Well, I know a lot of your photography features what you would probably call kind of the hand of man. <laughs> um, I know living in New England means there's a lot more human history in terms of just how long colonizers have been there as well as Native Americans as well. And, you know, there's a lot more of the hand of man in the landscape there. However, when you're in other areas, I'm curious if you find yourself wanting to tell more of that man-made story as well. So I think it, it varies a lot depending where I'm photographing. So my interest is, is to represent an area wherever I am as best as I can. So, you know, I've been to the Dolomites. Well, when I'm in the Dolomites, I'm not really featuring the hand of man. I'm featuring nature, mountains, streams, and trees. So it varies depending where I am. But it's just that New England, not including some of those hand of man elements. I mean, you know, we've got 200 lighthouses on the coast. It's, it's kind of hard to avoid those in New England. And we've got covered bridges, which is kind of a bit of a specialty. There aren't that many states that feature covered bridges. Lots of white steeple churches. And, you know, places like Cape Cod has got boardwalks that are very photogenic and scenic. And, and of course, on the main coast, you've got harbors, boats, and jetties. So to not feature those would be would be kind of like photographing Egypt without including the pyramids, right? Gotcha. Because that, that's what people associate it with. So it's not that there isn't other, there isn't nature, pure nature here. Of course there is. We have the White Mountains, for example, and we obviously have the seacoast, which doesn't need to show the hand of man. But I, I like to show the hand of man. To me, it bring it sort of gaps. It, it create it, it bridges the gap between nature and man, and that's what I like. So um, it's not all I do, but uh, I find it unavoidable in New England. But when I go elsewhere, obviously I was the Adirondacks last year. Well, really, the hand of man was not a focus there either. So right. it depends what I am. I think it varies. Gotcha. And then, in terms of how you do it, I'd love to hear kind of your approach to incorporating man-made objects um, into your landscape photography and what tips might you have for other people who either enjoy doing that or like you potentially find it a necessary part of telling the story of place? So, well, the first, first thing is that the, the hand of man elements uh, have to be in, uh, in an environment that's appealing. <laughs> I mean, you still, there's no difference between photographing, uh, you know, uh, nature and photographing a landscape with a, with a hand of man element in it. I mean, the same considerations have to take place. You have to have a good subject, good lighting, you know, good conditions, weather conditions, and good timing, right? All of those things apply. So to me, it's pretty much the same. It's the question of whether you're going to have in the foreground or in the background something that was man-made. And so I, I do pretty much what everybody would do if they were photographing just nature, if you're photographing a mountain and so on, as far as making sure that it's the right conditions, sun position, moon position, Milky Way position, whatever it might be. So there's really no difference in, in how I see photographing nature from how I see photographing landscapes 
with the hand of man. But if I'm photographing a lighthouse, for example, the first and most important thing would be to see if nature's cooperating, you know, for, for a shot there. And if it is, and I can include a beautiful lighthouse in the foreground or in the background, whichever the case might be, then, uh, then I'll do that. But uh, nature has to cooperate first. So it's consistent, I think, with any other nature photography from that point of view. But, uh, I, and I do think the hand of man does tell the story. You know, people who come to New England uh, expect some of that. I mean, if you come to the coast of Maine, you know, you expect to see lighthouses. And so you probably are going to gravitate towards lighthouse photos, which is one of the reasons Ben Williamson has been so so successful, because he's very, you know, he's great at that sort of photography. The coastal photography is superb. So, and so, you know, I think that's what people expect. And so that's what I want to deliver. Gotcha. And I'm curious, you know, when you're in the field and you've got beautiful nature and you've got an interesting man-made subject that goes with it, what's your thought process in terms of trying to figure out how to balance what the main subject is or which one is kind of the lead role of the play in terms of what you want to focus more on? So it varies. Um, Sometimes I'll make the hand of man element uh, really a secondary subject. And uh, for example, if I'm taking a Milky Way photo, uh, it might be that whatever I'm photographing, uh, you know, that's, that's a, whether it's a barn, for example, it might be that the barn is really small because I want to emphasize the, the sky, right, as, as, as a natural phenomenon that's to be admired. And so in that case, I might feature the barn as just something that, uh, you know, gradually, eventually leads the eye up to the sky. But uh, at other times, I might emphasize the lighthouse as the primary subject. Um, it depends on the scene. It depends on what I'm feeling. You know, if I, if I really think that I want to focus on the lighthouse, then I might get a little closer. And, uh, you know, the rest of the scene may be, sub, may be subservient to, to the lighthouse. Depends what I want to focus on. But most of the time in my photos, the hand of man is not in your face. It's usually just a component of of the story. And so, you know, you might have a leading line leading up to something, a shack or a, bri- or a bridge or whatever it might be, uh, up to a beautiful sky. So it's just one of the elements that sort of completes the picture, but gives a cultural context as well. So it's a, it's a supporting actor. Supporting actor. Sometimes it's the lead actor, but oftentimes it's just a supporting actor. And I think that's sufficient, really. In, uh, in most photos, I think it's sufficient. It gives the picture. Like I said earlier, I think nature is always is always driving here, and it's just you know what else you throw in the photo, and, and the hand of man elements is, is just something else to put in there. And sometimes there's flowers and and other things in the foreground as well, so it varies depending on what you're trying to to shoot. So, yeah, I find myself purposely avoiding <laughs> man-made objects as much as I possibly can, not because they don't look awesome or whatever. It's a lot of times for me, it's I, I really struggle with pairing a man-made object with the right scene in terms of having the man-made object help to tell a story. I find a lot of times in the places that I go, it's like they're competing for attention and it's hard to get them to marry up correctly. Some notable examples where I find it works really well, is there's a really classic scene in the Columbia River Gorge where there's a, a red barn and 
like a, in the springtime, there's a pear orchard and it's got tons of flowering trees and then you've got Mount Hood in the back. But, you know, the Red Barn is just a, it's like a character in the play. It's not taking away from the overall scene, if you will. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with that. I, in general, I think that uh, there's always a balance there. Uh, and I like simplicity in my photos. I don't like cluttered photos, which is why I don't do a lot of, you know, cities and, and, and a lot of, you know, busy villages. Uh, I like simplicity. So if, if it's going to be a hand of man, usually there's going to be one of those in the shot. That's it. And you're right, it has to be in a good context. Uh, an interesting environment. So I, that's always the, the challenge. Yeah. It's always the, but uh, I think that's that's the challenge of a New England photographer. You know? Right, so. right. Yeah, you, you, you don't have necessarily quite as many opportunities for wide open vistas without any buildings and things like that. So. <laughs> no, we have, you know, we have, obviously we have the coast uh, right. in New England. There's plenty of opportunities there and I've got a whole bunch of coastal photos that don't have any anything you know that was man-made in there sure and got the white mountains of new hampshire which are mountains uh you know not 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 of the scale of what you deal with in your neck of the woods but nevertheless they're 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 quite nice mountains so there's certainly potential for doing pure nature photography but you're right new england as a whole you know the expectations are that there are some of those popular elements lighthouses covered bridges white steeple churches and you know when i was doing workshops and we had uh, people come from out of state. I mean, that's what they wanted to photograph, right? Because that's what New England is associated with. So if we had taken them to the coast and, and said, okay, there's some rocks here in the foreground, just photograph the sunrise off the coast, I think they would have been disappointed. <laughs> that, because that's what, that's what New England is known for. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to shift gears. And, you know, I uh, did reach out to Ben Williamson yesterday just to get a little advice on what to ask you about. And... He, he gave me one question that I thought was really good because I think it can go a lot of different directions and maybe even showcase some of your passion. But um, basically the question is, what do you love most about photography? So uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to answer one thing uh, because there are several things that I like about photography. I think it's just uh, very much synchronized with my character and my experience. So, uh, for example, I was in the software industry for so many years. So the post-processing aspect of, of photography to me is really fun. I mean, that to me is about 50% of the fun is to see what I can do with a good image that I took in the field and then sort of apply my own creative juices to see what I can make of it. Uh, that's, that's really exciting. The other aspect that I really like is, as I mentioned earlier, just being out in the field. And uh, a third aspect is that I've made a lot of good friends. So uh, I tend to hang out with people who are very like-minded. And there's a certain thread of values, I think, that runs across most photographers. And uh, I enjoy, you know, hanging out with them. So oftentimes, if I'm not photographing alone, I'm photographing with a couple of friends. So I would say being in the field, having like-minded friends, and then the post-processing uh, aspect of it. Or those are the three things that I really enjoy about photography the most. So. Yeah, that, that, that all resonates with me, especially the being with friends part. It's funny because nature photographers have this, you know, stigma of being super introverted and hating people and things like that. But, you know, I, 
I totally agree with what you said that for the most part, there's a commonality of ethics and think thought processes and val- core values that a lot of nature and landscape photographers share. And it, it can transcend politics. It can transcend all kinds of other things. So I, I think it's pretty awesome. I agree. I agree. I, I really enjoy it. I can't, can't imagine ever giving it up. So I love it. Well, so you mentioned you left the corporate world to take on landscape photography full-time, um, and you chose to do so by teaching workshops, um, but you've since given up that pursuit, and I'm just curious why. So, well, here's, here's how it happened. First of all, when I started doing photography full-time, I had no intentions of doing workshops. So, and the big reason is that I'm in a, I was in a different phase of life than most photographers that is trying to build a business, right? And uh, clearly these days, we're doing workshops is a major revenue source for many photographers. So I wasn't really looking to do that because I didn't need to do that. I already had a successful career and I had basically retired from that. And I was looking to do, do a second career using my right brain instead of my left brain. So I really didn't intend to have to teach or you know prepare the workshops and all that sort of thing. So what happened is that uh, about eight, eight or nine years ago, I think it was, I was up in, in Vermont photographing full foliage as I did every year. And uh, I got a message from Ben and he said, hey, I've uh, never photographed in Vermont. Can I come up and join you for the week? I said, sure. So we spent the better part of the week together photographing around Vermont. Well, he loved it. Yeah, he'd basically been photographing only along the coast of Maine up until that point. So he said he really liked it. And so he asked me later, would you consider doing workshops? Now I had had that request before and I always turned it down because I don't have to do workshops. The other reason I turned it down is I figured this is kind of, you know, a, a, a revenue opportunity for, for starting photographers. And I don't really need to do that. So let them, you know, uh, go for the revenue. So that was part of, part of my thinking. And I think I, I can't remember for sure. I think I turned him down the first time he asked. But then I thought about it and I thought, well, in my past, I had taught, you know, college level courses in software. So I, it's not the teaching aspect that was concerning. Uh, it's more the time taking me away from my own photography that was more of a concern. So, uh, and I thought, well, this is going to help him out. And at that point, um, Ben had done a few workshops, but not a lot. And I thought, well, I'll help him out. And uh, I liked him. We got along really well. So um, uh, I agreed. So we started. I said, okay, I'll do one workshop with you. I'll do the Vermont workshop with you. Well, before you know it, we're doing Vermont. We're doing New Hampshire. We're doing Cape Cod. We're doing the coastal Maine. So uh, it sort of evolved into that. And I, and I, got, I sort of got pulled into it. And I enjoyed it very much. Uh, and, you know, Ben used to call me his workshop dad because... Uh, you know, sort of, but I'm, I was almost twice his age at the time. But we got along really well. What happened is uh, around, well, when did the pandemic start? That was in 2020. Right. Around 2020. So I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Oh, okay. And I found that out uh, sort of, I think, when we were doing the fall foliage workshop, I think it was. So it was the last workshop of the year. And I found that out. And uh, obviously nobody likes to hear the big C, 
So uh, I thought, okay, uh, this might change my life a little bit. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and nobody was doing workshops for two years, right? So the combination of those two things just caused me to sit back and sort of figure out what is it I want to do in the future. And uh, I had prostate surgery, and you know, I'm cancer-free and all that now. But it kind of gets you to uh, change, you know, your outlook on life a little bit, right? Right. So. I decided that what I really wanted to do is more of my own photography. And the workshops kind of conflicted with that. Uh, not only is it a lot of work, as I'm sure you know, but um, you end up photographing very little during the workshops. At least I didn't. I, I barely ever photographed. I mean, I rarely, really took photos because we, we took eight people and there were two leaders. We took eight people and there's usually somebody who needs assistance mm -hmm. and that's what you're for, right? So I would rarely take out my camera. So here we are photographing at the best times of the year because that's obviously when you schedule workshops. And I just wasn't doing any photography. So I decided that, well, I want to do more of my own photography because that's really what I enjoy. And I'm going to let others do the workshops. In a sense, I was worried that, you know, it might be an issue or a problem for Ben, but because the pandemic stopped all workshops for two years, you know, he had plenty of time to uh, collaborate with uh, Kurt, and their relationship is great. I mean, they get along really, really well. So um, I think that worked out really, uh, quite well. So that was my reasoning for abandoning workshops, is the cancer scare combined with just thinking, I want to do more of my own photography. Can't really do that because I'm photographing at the best times. I'm running workshops at the best time of the year. Right. So that's, that's how it all went down. Yeah, it's a lot to juggle. You know, and I'm curious from where you sit, having gone through it and, you know, having entered the workshop arena with not really having to need to do it. Um, and, and you also pretty much had almost no risk financially. I'm curious what advice you would have for other people who are, you know, looking to go full time and wanting to try to balance that uh, that challenge between wanting to make your own images still and wanting to be able to put food on the table. So, I mean, as you know, it's difficult to start afresh uh, and, and, you know, make sufficient income to cover, you know, a family these days in photography. So uh, the, I mean, I think like, I think Ben did it well in that he went to work for somebody down East and he got quite a bit of depth an experience while he was working for that company before he branched out on his own. And I think that's a really good way to do it. Work for somebody, learn everything you can. And the other thing I would say is very few people need photography courses. I mean, there's so much material out there available. You know, you can take a few workshops with uh, well-known, you know, respected photographers and learn an awful lot in a week. So. I think that if somebody needs an education, it's really in business and marketing. Because when you're a photographer by yourself, if you're running your own business, it is a business. And you're not going to succeed even if you're the world's best photographer if you don't know how to run a business, right? So <clears throat> I would suggest get, get a business experience, get a business uh, uh, education. Even if, uh, when, well, if, if, if somebody chooses to go study pro to study uh, photography then at least take some business courses because i think the business and marketing aspect is the real challenge not photography i mean if you're a natural at photography 
you're going to pick this stuff up and you know you'll learn all the time i mean we all know i'm sure you do too photographers who started from scratch and had no education in photography and some of the best photographers around you don't really need to be formally educated in photography but you need exposure to business in order to manage it that's my recommendation well said <laughs> yeah i think that's really good advice um i couldn't agree more all right well let's let's talk about field crafts and approaches to photography i i know you know some photographers kind of like to react to whatever nature gives them that's kind of my approach and you seem to have a knack for being very well prepared and i'm curious kind of what your general approach is to making images so yes um well first of all <clears throat> there are several reasons why i like to plan and i, I plan quite a bit uh usually until the moment i leave i'm doing making sure verifying using the apps and so on that it's worth going but so there's there's a couple of major reasons for that first of all i live in southern new hampshire so I can't, I can't walk out my door and be at the coast of Maine 10 minutes, right? Uh, some photographers have that privilege. So you can be a little more lax on the planning aspect if you can just walk down the street and, you know, drive 10 or 15 minutes and be someplace phenomenal, like Portland Headlight or something. I can't do that. So it's going to take me an hour and 15 minutes minimum to get anywhere on the coast of Maine. Even the coast of New Hampshire, the whole 15 miles of coast we have, could take me almost an hour to get there. Takes me two hours to get to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Takes me two hours to get to Vermont. Takes me three hours to get to someplace like Cape Cod. So I have to plan because the risk of missing is high. So if I don't plan and I just sort of go on site somewhere, I'm going to be wasting a lot of time and effort. And that, so that's one of the big reasons I like to plan is I'm not really close to anything. I can't just go out my door and photograph. I have to drive. And a lot of the times I have to go overnight. If it's a if it's a further site, which is often is Cape Cod, for example, I'll go overnight for one or more nights. So in order for me to do that, you know, to spend the time and the effort and the money, I want to I want to reduce the risk. I want to be sure, as sure as I can. And you know, we all know nature. There's no there's no certainty in nature, but I want to be as certain as I can that conditions will be will will be good for me to get the shots. So the other thing is I like to uh, pre-visualize. And, you know, Ansel Adams talked about this way back, you know, when he was alive in the 50s and 60s. And he would say that, you know, that's a really important element. And I think that planning gives me that. It allows me to pre-visualize what I might want when I get there. And so uh, that's not to say that when I get there, things are going to be as I visualized them, right? We all know that usually falls apart really fast. Right. But I think that by planning thoroughly, both in looking at conditions and then sort of pre-visualizing what compositions I might, might consider when I get there, uh, that reduces my risk. So that when I get there, if conditions are as I expected, I'm more likely to get the shot I had I'd hoped to get. Now, when I get there, if it's nothing like what I expected, then I think the key thing is you can't hold on to the original ideas you've got to switch gears and do what you can. So if you get there and there's clouds, well, maybe you switch to a long exposure on a moody, you know, moody beach scene or something. But you, you, have to, you have to kind of just switch gears as need be. And then, of course, oftentimes, as you know, we've all experienced, you get there and it's a bust. 
and you know nature played a trick on you and the, the weather forecast was inaccurate and uh, nothing happened like you expected and that happens a lot but so to me planning is about pre-visualizing and reducing my risk uh, that's it those are the main reasons I plan well there's a third reason and you know my wife would say I'm OCD so I don't I haven't never acknowledged and admitted that I am but I do like I've always been an organized person and I like I've always been that way when I was in business I was organized and I was a planner so it's kind of in my character so now I've seen the opposite and I've worked with photographers who are exactly like you said more sort of you know let's see what happens kind of thing and they too produce great work so both models work it depends what you're comfortable with um, you know Ben is a very very sort of dynamic photographer uh, like that and you know so the joke was that uh, I would be photographing and I've been out photographing with Ben aside from the workshops that we did and I'd be photographing and my style usually is to find a composition I like and then just wait for the light so I stay there my tripod you know I'm a tripod user always on the tripod I get a composition I really like and I just wait it out right that's model one well, model B is you just try several compositions, three or four compositions, sometimes handheld. And, you know, that works for Ben. He, and he's, you know, no, nobody can pull, you know, with his photos. I mean, they're great. So the two styles work. It just depends on who you are. Right. And I'm more, I'm more the organizer, the planner. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons Ben and I got along so well is maybe I put a little bit of planning in his head and he put a little bit more of, of sort of the, you know, spontaneity in my head. And I think in that regard, we were, we kind of balance each other out. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you don't have a full-time job and family commitments, there's, you know, there's more opportunity to wait out to, you know, wait out for the best conditions, that kind of a thing like, Oh, it's not good this week or tomorrow or next day or next day or whatever. I feel like, especially back when I had a job where I worked Monday through Friday and, you know, maybe had every other weekend to do something, if I only went out when the conditions were perfect, I probably would just never leave my house. <laughs> this is true. It's, it's, always, it's always a guessing game. I mean, I was, I was doing it today, uh, deciding whether I go out for sunrise, staring at the weather forecast. It's risky. Will I, will I not go? And... We've all done this where we say, ah, it doesn't look like it's worth going out. And then you start seeing the photos from that, from that. <laughs> right. And you say, darn, I missed it. And that always happens. I mean, you can't be out every day. At least I can't be out every single morning, given that I've got to drive and so on. But uh, yeah, it's always, it's always a, a decision to make. And uh, there's risk involved either way. I'm curious, do you ever, do you ever feel like it's possible to over prepare for an outing when do you ever nope. just find joy in just seeing what happens? <laughs> so I, I think I don't think it's possible to over prepare in the sense, but I think the danger is that you make a plan and you stick to a plan when it's no longer appropriate, mm -hmm. right? So you, if you envision or you pre-visualize a composition and you get there and the composition just doesn't work, but you're trying to make it work because that's what you pre-visualized. I mean, that's a problem because you know, that's, that's a lost cause. So I think that's more of a problem. If you can adapt when you get there, uh, based on the conditions that do exist, 
then I don't think over planning is, is really, you know, an issue because, uh, and there are certain kinds of shots, as you know, that need to be carefully planned. Milky Way shots, for example, right? It's kind of hard to go out in the middle of the night and say, well, I'm just going to try this. You kind of have to know what you're going to shoot and whether there's any foreground that works and so on. So there's those kinds of shots are more technically tricky. So they do require some degree of planning before you can go out and do anything productive. So, no, I don't think you can over plan. I, I think you can over stick to a plan, uh, but you, you can't over plan. I think it's just that you've got to be flexible. And that is difficult for people who are very organized and, you know, plan in detail. They have this mindset that this is what I want. And it's very difficult when you get on site and you say it's not going to work. Well, maybe it's going to work. Maybe we'll try to make it work. And it doesn't work, right? So I think that's more the problem is you got to be flexible. Yeah. And that, that's difficult. It depends on, again, it depends on your personality. Some people, it's, you know, that's naturally flexible. They'll jump from one thing to the other without a problem. There's some people that uh, can't do that as well. Yeah. And it's funny, like you said, for some people, knowing that what they've planned isn't going to work out and that they have to adapt, you can see it change their mood or change you know their entire disposition I, i've been out on so many trips with my friend kane who is very much a planner and you know we will realize that the weather isn't going to work out for something we had planned and and it takes him probably a good 20 30 minutes for us to just kind of like okay let's set that aside and let's just try to figure something else out now you know <laughs> I, I think one of the tendencies for people who are not flexible that way is just to give up, right? You get on site and you say, well, that's not what I wanted to capture. And so I, yeah. ah, that's done. I'm done. As opposed to trying something else. I think that's the, that's the real danger. I mean, I've seen it. I've done it in the past myself. So uh, I, I know how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are some of your tools? What are the, what do you go to, to, to plan your trips? So, I mean, I use probably the same tools everybody else uses. You know, I usually, I use three different weather apps, uh, usually Astrofaric and Windy and Weather Underground, just to see if they, if they match, uh, which they often don't, uh, to sort of figure out weather. I use Windy to determine the cloud position. Uh, I use other tools like TPE, Photographer's Ephemeris, to figure out whether the sun and the moon angles are going to work. If I'm planning a night shot, I would use tools like Stellarium on the desktop. I mean, there, you know, there are tools like PhotoPills, which I use on site, but uh, a, a small phone to do a complete plan of a shoot to me at my age is difficult. So I'd rather use the desktop. So I use Stellarium in conjunction with Google Earth and a compass to sort of plan those kinds of shots. I'm just learning how to use Planet now. Uh, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've seen it, but I don't use it. It's a very comprehensive app. Uh, it looks like a, really an excellent app that includes a lot of different stuff that could be useful. It's kind of like a photo pills level sort of application. Anyways, I'm starting to use that one, uh, but that's basically the complement of apps. And you know, for post-processing, I, I use the same thing everybody else uses. I was an early adopter of Lightroom. Uh, I was using the, I think I was on the very first beta program and I thought this, is a great tool, you know, developed by photographers for photographers. So I loved it from the start and I've stuck with it ever since. And uh, I know Photoshop as well. I usually do some uh, sort of uh, local edits uh, in Photoshop at the end of my processing cycle. 
but that's uh, that's sort of the complemented tools. Not not anything different than anybody else would use, I think. I feel like I use Google Earth way less than most of my friends do. I, I usually just use Gaia to kind of get a sense of an area. And then I'm using Windy, like you said. It's an awesome app. I have the premium version, and it's worth it for sure. And then other than that, I use you know, PhotoPills just to, like, once I'm there, I'm just, or, you know, you know I can pre-visualize generally kind of where things are going to be just by looking on, on there. But I'm also, I don't f- consider myself a planner at all anymore, so. <laughs> well, if it works for you, you know, that's what's important. We each have our own sort of workflows and personalities. And so if it works for you, that's what's important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I find PhotoPills is great, though. Like, once you get to a scene, you you start to get some ideas of things that you might want to try out, and so then you get it out and you start using augmented reality to kind of figure out where the moon's going to be or things like that. So I do think uh, it's an amazing tool for when you're in the field, you know. I agree, and I use it a lot. I I, I always use PhotoPills to verify, like you said, moon and sun position. And Milky Way is good. The Planner app is really very good for that. So uh, it's, it's definitely very useful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's let's shift gears to to p- something a little controversial. You up for okay. that? <laughs> sure. Why not? All right. Well, obviously, we've we've definitely covered this topic many many times before on the podcast, but I'm always curious to hear other people's take on it, especially photographers who have been at it for longer than me. So I'd be curious if you could kind of tell me your thought process uh, regarding ethics in photography as it relates to how we edit and how we present our work for public consumption. Okay, yeah, that's always a controversial topic. And we've got, uh, so it's almost like, uh, it's almost like political parties. (laughs) So it feels that way sometimes. (laughs) So my view is, well, first of all, you know, I'm a strong proponent that in the belief that uh, photography is is an art form, and uh, sometimes you still run into people who question that. Right? They think it's a documentary medium as opposed to an art form, and of course, it can be a documentary medium depending what business you're in. If you're a newspaper right. or a journalist of some kind, and it needs to be documentary, but when you're doing landscape and nature photography like we are, it certainly is an art form. So the way I feel about it is if we, if we agree that it's an art form, then to me that says the artist has flexibility as to what they do with their images. And uh, I mean, you know, I mean, even Ansel Adams, as we've all heard the stories, did extensive sort of processing in the darkroom, right, of his images. And if you've, ever seen, if you've ever seen some of his unprocessed film, compared it to the process, the print, they didn't look anything alike. They were completely different. So, you know, that goes way back. I mean, this issue of how much can you change your photo goes way back. And anybody who's a purist and uses Ansel Adams as their model, then, you know, it's he wasn't a purist either. Yeah, you're, so. you're, you're not standing on very solid ground with that argument. Solid ground. <laughs> well, I'm very liberal when it comes to this topic in that although I don't push the envelope, in how I process my photos. I think I process my photos very conservatively because I like them that way. I like them to look realistic. Uh, I respect others who feel differently. And I 
I, I really like the work of people like Mark Adamus, for example. Um, they obviously do significant processing um, and alterations of, of a significant magnitude to their images. I mean, they might warp the mountain to make it look taller, they might add streams, they might add flowers. I don't do any of that stuff, but I love their work. Uh, so there's a difference between doing it and liking it and accepting it. And I think if we're artists, uh, we need to accept that somebody who has a different view of their art is also an artist in the same way that we are. So the one caveat to me is that as long as they admit what they're doing. So if you are going to do extensive processing up to your photos, it should be known that that's what you do, however you could convey that. And in that regard, I think it's a good idea to have an ethics statement on people's websites yeah. so that they know who you are and what you do, right? Now, people like Mark Adamus, they, they openly admit what they do. So uh, nobody's trying to deceive anybody. And so, and I think that's fine, uh, as long as you're not trying to deceive. I think the problem, where, where the problem comes in is when somebody publishes a photo and makes it seem like it was real, but it wasn't at all real. Well, that's obviously a problem. Now you're, you're dealing with an integrity problem. So, but I think as long as you know what this artist is doing, I don't have a problem with, you know, digital art uh, being blended with what started as a photograph. So, I mean, in the same way that, you know, you, you, you may not like all painters, you know, maybe, maybe you didn't like you know, the, the cubit period in Picasso's life. Um, right. <laughs> you, have, you might not like it, but you have to respect that he was an artist and he was a painter uh, and he had his own unique style and uh, he had every right to do what he did, even though it was very different uh, from the impressionistic painters, you know? So I think it's the same thing with photography. So, and you know, these, the, we all get the question, right? Is this photoshopped? How often have we gotten that question when we publish a photo, right? And it's kind of a difficult question to answer in the sense because it, a large percentage of photographers use Photoshop in some way or another. So do you say yes because it touched Photoshop? Okay. I, I suspect they mostly mean have you added or deleted or whatnot made major changes to it using Photoshop. But it's kind of an improperly uh, uh, sort of phrased question. And I hate that question I, because I don't really know what to say because I do use Photoshop, but I don't use it to, you know, add foregrounds and, and uh, lengthen my mountains. Uh, I use it for really simple stuff. So, uh, but I, I just think it's a battle that Ansel Adams fought way back in the 40s and the 50s to have photography considered an art form. And we should kind of put it to bed 80 years later. It's an art form, and that means the artists, whether you like their work or not, I think the artists deserve, you know, to or have the right to produce the work however they want to feature it, as long as they're honest about what they're doing. That's the key to me. It's not what you do, it's what you say about what you do. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you just said. Where I get triggered is on the presentation of the work, and oftentimes even some of the artists you've referenced will present images in a way that would lead someone to believe that it was as it seems. Um, and I think that's my biggest issue is when people kind of, you know, they're very 
a laissez-faire about, oh, look how amazing Colorado is. And they don't make any mention of the fact that, like, they took a two-by-three image and they squished it into a square or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, um, I, I think that's, uh, that's part of the ethics, I think, is that you, if you make major changes beyond what is normally expected, um, then you should put that in the description so people can put it in context. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I honestly I have no problems with it when it's properly disclosed. And I, you know, that's where I think people get a lot of heartburn is like, okay, well, when is, how far is too far? Like in terms of disclosure, you know, do you have to put everything you did to a photo or, you know what I mean? Like that's where, you know, there's a slippery yeah. slope and all that, but. I don't think they have to put everything that they do to a photo. I mean, that's yeah, kind of curious. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but that's why I'm a proponent of ethics statements on people's websites. Mm. Because you can describe what your philosophy is about processing all of your photos and how far you're willing to go. And you can do that in an ethics statement without having to say on every single picture, you know, be aware that I do this, this, and this. Right. I mean, I think that's a, kind of a good compromise is you put kind of your philosophy uh, of post-processing on your website and an ethics statement. I think that would help a lot. Agreed. All right. Well, this kind of touches on this a little bit because I think social media is a, is a battleground for where this particular debate we're talking about emerges quite frequently. And I think oftentimes it's because of the way people use social media. And I've seen a lot of photographers kind of purposely misrepresent their images just for the sole sake of popularity purposes and things like that. So in terms of social media, you know, I see it as having a lot of benefits, but there's also a ton of drawbacks. And I think it's pretty safe to argue that social media has completely reshaped landscape and nature of photography over the past 15 years. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've seen it do during your tenure as a professional. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're, you're exactly right, that I think there are some benefits and some huge drawbacks. And there's a lot of negativity, I think, associated with social media. And it seems to be increasing uh, even more. So, I mean, obviously social media was viewed as a great marketing platform for photographers, which didn't exist before. But these days, you know, there are 300 million photos added to Facebook every day, which is hard to fathom. And there's 90 million photos added to Instagram and videos added to Instagram per day. So, you know, you have to question, well, how much exposure are you really getting? You know, you're competing with that kind of volume. And you're right that I think it's really changed several things. And I think it has to do with the dynamics of social media, but it's changed not only the rules, as to what defines good photography, but I, I think it's changed the expectations as well. So, and it varies a little bit by platform, and I'm finding that I've, I've got a good following on Facebook, and I'm finding differences between Facebook and Instagram. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing, but the demographics are quite different between the two. And so the, the behavior and the response is very different as well. But what I'm finding is that it, I, I jokingly compare it to the Roman Forum. You remember that in the early days, I'm a really big history buff, so I love to read about ancient you know, civilizations and like Rome and Greece and Egypt. And way back when they 
originally started the Roman games, right? It was a, oh, some, a few gladiatorial contests and, and some, you know, maybe they'd have an animal sacrifice to the gods and then they would have chariot races. And that was pretty much it. And over time, the emperors needed to do more and more and more to placate the people. And so they added gore, they added human sacrifice, they added ridiculous stuff that we all know and have read about, right? And it just kept, kept getting more and more and more. And, and I joke with my friends that this is kind of social media and that, you know, it, it's getting, they want drama. It's like, it's like newspaper articles. They want drama. That's what, that's what gets featured. It's got to be dramatic, more dramatic, and even more dramatic. And it's almost like the Roman games that keeps escalating. And so, you know, if you, if you post a really oversaturated, over-colorful photo on Instagram, they love it. You know, you post a photo of a waterfall or something like that. It's like, it's not very good. doesn't get very good, you know, uh, uh, sort of comments and following. So I think it changes the expectations. And so people who are looking at this stuff are now thinking that, well, the only good photos are those that have all that drama in them, right? And I think that's too bad because there's a lot of photography that doesn't have to be dramatic, right? And there are certain scenes that need not be dramatic. And so I think it's really changing expectations. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, it's, it's like we're, we've created a, a whole uh, civilization of color-deprived people and they just want to see more and more and more. And I don't know where this ends, but I don't know. You probably have the same experience in that I've seen photographers who five years ago would have not been considered worthy of publishing, who have a large following because they put exaggerated photos up. I mean, seriously exaggerated, like, you know, on the moon kind of exaggerated photos. For sure. And yet, and yet they have large followings. Yeah, no, I, I wrote a whole article on Petapixel about this a couple of years ago because that's exactly what I've noticed since I got into photography in 2010. You know, it was always, almost like a like a Cold War like arms race in terms of who can make the most ridiculous photograph and become popular. And I think it's super interesting hearing your kind of stance on processing because... I don't know, for me, I've made the connection between social media and processing. I think those two things have gone hand in hand in terms of what's driving people to do those sorts of things with their with their photographs. I think oftentimes we hear people use, you know, raise the flag of art. This is art. This is art. This is my artwork. But honestly, I think if most of these, not all, but I think if a lot of these people are being honest with themselves, it's because they're in this rat race of social media and wanting to draw attention to their work and they're wanting it to be seen by more people and and they have to keep doing more and more and more to, to get noticed. And I think that's what's caused a lot of this post-processing stuff that we've seen over the last 10 years. I, I completely agree. And I think it's, it's kind of a natural uh, sort of distortion that uh, social media feeds that causes some of these people with exaggerated photos to have a, a good, still a good following. And I've seen two things in people. One is if you like the person, even if you don't like the photo, you're more tender, you have the tendency to say, oh, I like, I, I like it, even though you really don't like the photo, but you like the person. And that's, you know, like it or not, I think that's, that's a factor. So if they like you, you can post a 
you know, a, a mediocre photo and you'll still be a like on there. And there's a bunch of that going on. The other thing that happens a lot is people like a photo just because they're hoping that the people who follow that person will actually come and follow you, right? So, so it's strange. that trickle down, distorted trickle down effect that they're hoping for. And so you've got people with really not very good photos who are still getting a big following because of the weird dynamics of social media. Yeah, and you don't strike me as the kind of person that's put a lot of effort into caring about this stuff anymore. <laughs> so uh, I, I, don't, I have a really good following on Facebook. And uh, I came to Instagram late, so you know less of a following there. But I, I still have a very good following on Facebook. And I don't hate social media, but I don't love it either. I'm really a middle of the roader. Mm -hmm. I resent the rules and the stupid, you know, uh, engines and, and whatnot that define or try to define what we should be doing, you know, posting every day and so on. Um, and in the case of Instagram, posting reels and it's like, no, I don't do any of that. So, but you're right. I mean, I'm also not trying to build a business here, so it might be different for somebody who's trying to do that. But for me, um, it's a way for me to publish photos on my terms whenever I want to. And sometimes there are big gaps. I mean, I'll go weeks without posting anything if I don't think I've got anything worthwhile Same. or if I'm perfect. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to let these algorithms define my life uh, because I've seen too many, too many times that people who try to post every single day, well, first of all, very few of us can take an outstanding picture every day, right? I mean, you run out. I mean, there's 365 days a year. You run out really fast of, of your outstanding Well, that, that's, that's what Photoshop's for, Mike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, indeed. So what I've seen in people is some very good photographers that start posting mediocre photos just to keep up with the algorithm. Yeah. And to me, when I see that, it averages out their reputation, right? And that's why I wouldn't do it. Uh, I mean, if I post a photo, it's because I like it. Maybe others don't like it, but at least I like it. And I wouldn't post a photo I don't like because I, th I view it as averaging, you know, my reputation. And uh, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, and I was, as you were talking, I was trying to formulate a follow-up to this that I'm going to stumble through. Because <laughs> I'm wondering for you, what's the relationship between how much energy and thought you put into social media and how others view you and how you feel about your work and how you see the quality of your images shift. Well, I don't put a lot of emphasis on social media. Uh, I deliberately don't. And to be honest, I see that as a trend among a number of professional photographers who I know well. A good friend of mine who's a professional photographer and has been forever a professional photographer, completely gave up social media. He thought it was a time sink. He thought it was too required too much of his, of his efforts daily to keep up and to try to attract a following. You know, the whole business of going to like a whole bunch of people's photos so that, you know, you can get sort of some visibility and so on. He didn't want to do that. So he gave it up, just basically completely abandoned it. And he reverted back to a subscription model, kind of the old model, subscription model, where he has a, a monthly newsletter and it works really well for him. And I've heard this complaint time and time again from professional photographers. They're 
a lot of them who I've spoken to have said they've either backed off, uh, they sort of do what I do, and that is that you post something when you have something you like, but you don't bother with any other aspect of the algorithm. And, you know, you're not trying to keep up with the 300 million photos that are being posted on Facebook and the 90 million on Instagram every day. So, and uh, they revert to other methods for marketing, you know, their products or their workshops, and it works for them. So I'm wondering, I don't know, but I'm wondering if that's going to be a trend in the future. All reports, are, all indications are that Instagram followers are becoming less and less, or I should say photographers who have been using Instagram are becoming less and less enamored with the platform. So maybe this is a trend and a lot more professional photographers are going to go back sort of to the old ways of, of uh, promoting themselves because uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, plus your, your photo is, is thrown in. I mean, if you're a professional photographer, part of your work, your photo is being thrown in amidst all of the other stuff, right? All the other sludge that we've talked about. So uh, that could be a tough battle. Yeah. So, uh, how I view my work, I mean, you know, I, I don't think about that an awful lot. The way I view it is I, I want to continue to learn and apply what I learn, make the best photos I know how, and uh, I'll, I'll publish them. And if people like them, great. Uh, you know, I'm not too bothered by, by how people think about my work. Um, and that probably has a lot to do with my age and the fact that I'm not, I'm not worried about building a business. But, you know, when Ben and I did the workshops, uh, that was a business. I built the website for that. It was very successful. We had a really loyal following. We had great subscribers. We would announce a workshop on day one, and usually by day two it was full. So, I mean, that was a business, and that was successful. And, uh, you know, we didn't need to do an awful lot of social media stuff to get that. Yeah. So, so I wonder in the future if social media is going to be relegated to more, uh, you know, enthusiasts rather than the professionals. I don't know. That's a question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I will say what I enjoy social media for is, you know, keeping up to date on what my friends are up to, other photographers that I admire, you know, liking what they're up to and, you know, having the knowledge of, hey, it looks like you had a good time over there. That would look like a really good trip or whatever. But other than that, I don't, I mean, and I also like to like banter with people like in the comments with, you know, my friends and, you know, have a good time that way. But in terms of like caring too much about social media presence, I don't put a ton of thought into it anymore. I just, I haven't seen it produce a whole lot of results in terms of business or things like that, but it's also it hasn't really been a large part of my personal strategy either. So, yeah. Well, I think your approach may be uh, may be used more and more in the future. I think I, that's the sense I get from the field, anyway. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and and what I was, I think I just had kind of poorly worded my follow up question there because what I was trying to convey is. I personally see the relationship between the energy they put into social media and how interesting or personal their photography is. I find the people that spend more and more time on social media and trying to care about algorithms and pleasing, becoming popular and stuff like that, sometimes I see their work kind of slides in a direction that isn't in a direction that I personally appreciate it going in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. So I, 
there are certain aspects of social media that I do like. I mean, uh, like I said, I have a really good following on, on Facebook. And, you know, it's always fun to share photos and get the reaction and all that. And I don't mind that. And like you said, there is some amount of bantering and that kind of keeps things nice. Uh, one of the things I do in every photo is I give quite a long description. And, I, and it's kind of become sort of my calling card, if you will, in that if I, if I bother posting a photo, which is not in keeping with the algorithm, but if I bother posting a photo, I will post a fairly lengthy, lengthy description to kind of give them a sense of what the experience was there on site, taking the photo and so on. And I think people appreciate that. So I do take the time to do that sort of thing. But uh, the rest of social media, you know, rules, I, I don't really pay any attention to that whatsoever. And I agree with you. I've seen people who spend too much time paying attention to social media and you know the, the work doesn't really seem to to reflect the hype and uh, I, I don't want to be that person yeah same I, and I've fallen into that trap before too I can remember there was a period of time maybe in gosh maybe 2020 I was trying to post every single day and you know I was having a hard time finding images that were very good to post and I'm like that's eh, fine I'll post it but you know you look back on it, you're like oh those weren't the best photos <laughs> well I think that's the problem I think that's exactly the problem you hit it on the head and uh, I know several very good photographers in, in the area and they do try to conform with the daily rule and all of that with and I, I think the work becomes inconsistent just naturally right I mean, if I tried to do it, it would be inconsistent as well because, you know, we can come up with 360 great photos uh, in, in a year. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yep. So, I mean, and people like, you know, the extreme is people like Mark Adamus and, and so on, and there's several others in that category. They don't pay almost any attention to social media, and they post a photo every once in a great while. So if you see a photo from some of these guys, and some of these are very well-known photographers in the field, they post a photo every few months. Right. And they just don't, they just don't care. Uh, and they're still very successful. So I don't think it's a uh, foregone conclusion that it's an absolute prerequisite, you know, to, to do big things on social media to be successful. I don't think that's the case. I agree. I agree. Even though I think all of us wish we had a massive following. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, th I think, well, I think there's a certain ego boost right i mean whether we admit it or not i think that's what it comes down to you post a photo and you get lots of attention it's kind of an ego boost and that feels good i mean it's you know it's it's like getting a compliment from from a friend you know it's the same kind of thing and so i think that's unfortunately i think that's addictive and i think that's what i see on social media some of these people are addicted to that feedback and are willing to do anything well, and it, it is a good argument to say, like, if you do have a huge following, it's much easier to promote the things you are trying to sell if you have a larger audience. Well, I agree. And I agree. And, you know, I have to say that when we were doing workshops, we did promote our workshops. Not heavily, but we did uh, announce workshops, for example, on social media. And that certainly helped, right. at least some of the early followers. followers. So it's, it's not useless. Totally. It's just got some big problems. It's got some big warts. Yep. Well, all right, Mike, last question. Who do you recommend for the podcast? So, well, naturally, I would recommend some of my friends. Uh, let's see, uh, Betty Wiley, who is kind of a preeminent 
photographer on Cape Cod. She's been doing it for a long time. She's well known and she's a good friend. I, I think she'd be very interesting to interview. Uh, I mentioned Tom Payne. Tom Payne, that's you. Tom Mackey, rather. Uh, and Tom is a good friend and I've been with him many places. He lives in the UK, but he's an American who moved to the UK about 20 years ago. So he's a very good photographer. I've learned a lot from him because I've traveled with him quite a lot uh, in Europe and elsewhere. And I think he would be an interesting person. His entire career, I mean, he went to university for photography and then, you know, was a commercial photographer before he became a landscape photographer and so on. Interesting person. So he might be of, uh, of some value to you. And then uh, another person here who lives in New England is Jeremy Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S. Uh, he has a gallery in the Lakes region here in New Hampshire, good photographer. So he might be uh, an interesting person for you to contact and uh, see if he might be willing to do a podcast with you. I love it. All right, Mike, well, you said that you were dedicating all your time now to making your own images. What, what, are, you, what are you working on? So, well, it depends on the season, right? So New England has lots of seasons, as you do. And so all my work is seasonal. So we're coming into waterfall season, and then we're coming into a bloom season, early June. And uh, then in the summer, I do most of my night photography, chasing the Milky Way over the months that where the you know foliage is less interesting. It's just a dark green here. So, and then of course in the fall, it's a busy time. So I've got several trips planned. I've got uh, my wife and I are going to Europe, going back to France. Of course, I'm going to have a camera and a drone with me. Then I've got some friends that were, get, were getting together on Cape Cod the first week of June. That's a good time for blooms there, uh, beach roses and so on. And then uh, later on in the summer, uh, I'll be going out to uh, Mount Rainier and Olympic National Park. Just happened to hit Mount Rainier during the peak of the wildflowers there in August. And then in the fall, I'm having uh, three friends joining me on, for two weeks on fall photography here. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the scope uh, of things, but it varies by season, of course. Yeah. I do fly a drone. I own a couple of drones. And that's something I've taken up over the last year. and It adds a new twist uh, to landscapes. I'm not fond of the sort of bird's eye view kind of shots, but I use it to get to places that are either difficult or impossible to reach. Still making similar photos and landscape photos, but so I've got, I've got a lot of that sort of work as well planned for the year. Awesome. Sounds like a busy year. I'm trying to make it busy. Uh, so, uh, because that's the way I like it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I had a great time. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for the interview. Of course. Well, thank you to Mike for the great conversation today on the podcast. I really appreciated your thoughtfulness. Well, before we part ways, I want to remind listeners about a wonderful opportunity to improve your photography over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is one of the best platforms for improving your images because there is a dedicated and active audience of fantastic photographers at all levels participating in the critique forums there. David Kingham, who owns NPN, has been putting a lot of energy into improving the critiques over there. So if it's been a while since you visited, have another look. If you're new to NPN, you can join for just $49 per year by going to npn.link 
forward slash fstop or by clicking on the link in our show notes. You can also use the code fstop10 for a 10% discount. That's npn.link forward slash fstop. I hope to see you there. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.